Captain's Log, Stardate 73595. I have returned to Lone Star Station after what felt like a long road getting here. Commander Lisa will remain on to brief our station security on tactics new and old. This episode of These Are the Voyages is dedicated to getting from there to here and new foundations. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of These Are the Voyages. I'm the captain, I'm Captain Chase McKinney. And uh, once again, we have uh, Lieutenant Commander Eric that has been holding the station down for us as um, I've been zipping around or he's been zipping around on these away missions that we've had to take care of. So first off, Eric, thank you for uh, making sure that the station did not explode in my absence while I went to Deep Space Nine with uh, Commander Lisa last time. It was tough, right? Uh, you know, nobody at the top running the show, keeping it tight, but I did my best here. You did it. You did it. I mean, you did it. I did it. I did it, right? You know, hey, we had to hurry up and clean up before you got back, right? Because of all the wild parties that we threw. Yeah, the intergalactic kegger. That's right. We had one of those, right? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't let you wouldn't let us. I brought the idea up to you, and you were like, not on my station. <laughs> Well, anyway, I'm glad that you're able to clean up the mess that uh, you and the Ferengi and whoever else might have made uh, with all your wild parties and betting that you did. We played some Tongo, right? They let me play. They let you play. Cost me, cost me a lot. They, well, it cost me a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of latinum, but, you know, they let me play. Hey, you do what you do. So, anyway, so... We're, we're back at Lone Star Station. Uh, last time I was, um, uh, I took the Vigilant out for a spin. We had to um, head over to Deep Space Nine because uh, I think we had left some stuff behind there. Um, so anyway, th that's a bad, bad joke for the beginning of the show, but I'm just getting started. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, not sorry, I guess. Uh, so, you know, Eric, I know that we've been uh, chit-chatting a lot uh, together, you know, talking uh, Star Trek Picard and engaging um, on that stuff, like with the Engage show. But how have you been um, apart from watching Star Trek Picard? What's, what's new for you? Not much is new for me. I lead a pretty boring life where I get up, I go to work, I come home, I go to the gym, watch some Star Trek, and then go to bed. That's my life. How about that? How about that? The gym, man. You're doing better than me. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm fat, so I got to lose some weight. I'm right there with you. I got I to gotta, um, shred some of my, my triple basically. I got a lot of triple action around my midsection. Hey, I've lost 10 pounds this year so far. Shazam! Get after it, man. Right? In a month and a half. There you That's go. pretty good. It's not bad. It's really good. Well done. It's pretty good. Only got like 30 more I need to lose. So there's a group that I'm part of on, um, on Facebook, and there's actually a book that you can buy if you really, really want to, and it's called Body by Starfleet, and it's actually like this, like, 
Star Trek Starfleet inspired workout program. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Do we get the the Worf calisthenics program where you're just in there like beating up a bunch of people? I mean, we might as well. <laughs> you remember the Worf yes. calisthenics program, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, let's let's do that. It's great. Uh, that that or um oh gosh what was the thing that Riker and his dad did in the um, season two? Oh yeah like Rao it started with it was like Raujambo or something <laughs> Ambo Ambo Jitsu Ambo Jitsu there we go it looked like some American gladiators type game yes, right yes they had those big little like like big ass Q tips that they would like hit each other with. that's the one <laughs> yeah and, and Ambo Jitsu yeah. <laughs> And they're wearing they're wearing like baseball gear and and sparring stuff. I, yeah. So you and and most of the, and some of the listeners out there know that I do cosplay and that among the the people that I cosplay is Riker because I have a beard and I don't want to shave it. So I'm trying to do as many variants of Riker as possible. And I did actually start looking up all the sparring gear for Ambujutsu and. Yeah, that, that crap's expensive. <laughs> you could always make it yourself, right? I mean, get some EVA foam, I suppose. Yeah. Or go to, go, go to the thrift store and, and find some old baseball gear, right? Don't don't serious cosplayers all make their own stuff? Don't they, like, try and shun you if you, like, purchase it from a store or something? I mean, there are those elitists if you... I mean, if you really want to be like that. But, you know, I've I'm the type where I either will thrift the heck out of stuff. Like if you ever um, look at like my, my Doctor Who cosplays, for example, most of that stuff I've thrifted and repurposed, basically. And that's what people do. Like they'll, they'll, they'll repurpose things from like a thrift store or they'll get like an EVA foam and they'll, and craft foam and they'll do their thing with it. Um, but there's, but for me, there's absolutely zero shame in buying it from like Amazon or, or whatever. You got to start somewhere. Or like, or like Anavos. Right? Oh they my got God. All those costumes. But those are like super expensive though. They are. They? And they are, um, causing problems for people because one, they're expensive, but they're high quality, but they're really expensive. And they'll say like, this will dispatch, this will be sent out in like X number of months. And then two years later, you still haven't gotten it. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I want some Anova stuff, but after uh, hearing like some some horror stories about like what they've been doing, I don't want that. Yeah, because like their their uh, first contact style um, uniforms look amazing. Yeah, yeah, that they they look like really high quality. Yeah, all of them do. Like whether it's you know first contact like you were saying, or it's. You know the Wrath of Khan, the, the Monster Maroon uniforms, or the the TNG uh, and Deep Space Nine uniforms. Those are amazing too. They also, I mean, they do Star Wars and Ghostbusters and other fandoms as well. But the timing on stuff is is less than stellar. So let me just, since we're talking cosplay, um, and I'm probably gonna uh, butcher the name. There's a Facebook group that I'm I'm part of, and the the person that runs it. She's based out of, I think, China. But she does exquisite work. Um, she does exquisite work for the uniforms that she makes. And she's already working on some Star Trek Picard uniforms. 
Um, so like the ones we see in the comic books, the ones that we've seen um, on the show. In fact, I have a, um, a command red and a science blue Picard era uniform already. And um, anyways, the, the Facebook group is called uh, Star Trek Habilement, H-A-B-I-L-I-M-E-N-T. And uh, you should check it out, join the group, especially if you're into Star Trek cosplay, and buy from this person. I'm not getting any sponsorship money for saying this, but it's they do great, great work. And I just want to show some love to a fellow Star Trek fan. That's cool. I would love to cosplay as some kind of alien character, but that requires a bunch of makeup and prosthetics, and that stuff can be complicated. Slightly. Like, I want to get some Vorta ears. That be, I think that'd be kind of cool. Dude, all you need to do is just get, like, some Spock ears, right? And that's... No, I want some Vorta ears. Okay. Okay. I'm sure we can find you some. if you. I'm sure we probably could. Okay. All right, for all y'all listening, I need you to use your superpowers. We need to find Commander Eric some Vorta ears. So, if you find them, and they're, they're a good price... And I don't mean $5,000 or even $500. But if you find some... Yeah, that's a little too much. You can send it to Lone Star Station, P.O. Box. Keep, never mind, I'll do that at the end. Okay, and we'll get, let's see if we can find it. If we can find it. And we got to get that to right. Eric. Because he needs to be a Vorta, for crying out loud. Yes. So. All right. Well, um, what's been going on with me... Uh, I've been busy, very, very busy with life and stuff. Well, life can do that. It's a thing. It's a thing, you know, like taking mom to radiation every morning for, for treatments and running a private practice and seeing 20 plus clients and being in school and then somehow making time for everything else. It's, it's great. It's great. I'm going to go be, I'm going to go see, uh, the new Sonic the Hedgehog movie here pretty soon. So I feel that looks terrible by the way i want to okay so the fact that they they took the time and they invested an extra five million dollars into redesigning sonic because there's such an uproar i i almost feel obligated to support it and okay i've heard critics pan it but audience are saying it's it's fantastic so we'll see yeah so growing up uh i i had a uh, Sega Genesis, that was the game system that I had for the longest time. I think I went from Sega Genesis to Xbox. I don't think I had anything in between there. Okay. So I played, I played a lot of Sonic growing up. Gotcha. A lot of Sonic. I never had uh, the Genesis... I never had the Sega Genesis or anything like that. Uh, it was always my, my cousin who always had like the next best system but he was always in Ohio and I was down in Texas at the time and I remember when I was visiting one time and I was just freaking the heck out because you had the Sonic and Knuckles adapter game thing or whatever yeah I had that so you could get that and then put either Sonic the Hedgehog or Sonic 2 on top of it and Knuckles could play those in those games that was just so cool to me I definitely had that yep so, and then freaking the heck out when Sonic Adventure came out on Dreamcast. Anyone remember the Dreamcast listening to this? I don't. You don't remember the Dreamcast? Yeah, you went from the Genesis to the, what did you say, 360? To the, to the Xbox. The Xbox, okay. Yeah, nothing in between. I mean, think of all the game systems that came out in between the Sega Genesis and the Xbox. Yeah. 
didn't the Genesis come out at the same time as the Super Nintendo? Maybe even before. Probably this around the same time. Okay. Yeah, because I had the Super Nintendo, and then, like, did you have game... Um, did you know anyone that had a Game Gear, which was, like, the portable Sega Genesis, basically? No, I don't. Okay, I'm... My, I don't even know. I'm not sure I even remember that. So uh, there was a like a frenemy that lived across the street from me. Like, you know, you know. OK, so it was like there were the kids at school that you don't like, but your parents are like, no, they like you. I'm like, no, they really don't. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking okay, about. OK, it was yes. that kind of person. OK, like I felt I considered him a bully. But my parents still made me play with him, and I hated it. And the only thing I liked about playing with him is that he had a Game Gear, and he had like, uh, like this, like a portable Sonic game. He had like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers game. He had Vector Man. If you remember Vector Man at all? No. Man, I'm just I'm like dropping some knowledge right now. You are. You are. <laughs> so anyway, classic video gaming or class classic-ish video gaming. We're not even going back to, like, Commodore 64 or anything like that. But, anyways, how do we... Okay, yeah, I'm going to go see the movie. That's how we got on that little tangent there. Yeah, we tend to get off onto some tangents is, on, uh, when we're chatting here. Yeah, especially when I'm involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, good grief. Well, um, well, so, today we're going to be talking about... Um, another Star Trek series and if I'm not mistaken this is the fifth live action that sounds right fifth live action that's correct the fifth live action Star Trek uh, television series and um, with that uh, this is going to be another one of those kind of entry point kind of um, I don't know what would you call it like a survey kind of information take at at this particular show yeah like a, a broad overview we're just gonna hit the hit the highlights hit the key points talk in general strokes yeah right and not go too in depth into any one particular storyline episode or character just give you the highlights in case you want to get into it these are some some things you you can look out for and you can need to know yeah yeah absolutely and this is Again, this this show is just going to be kind of us talking about some of our likes, maybe some of a few dislikes to a certain extent, uh, but we're not going to get in the weeds. At least we're going to do our best not to get in the weeds uh, with with this conversation. Uh, again, like we've talked about in these these other survey shows, basically where we've talked about the main series, this is just meant to be a type of primer for you to try and decide like. If you are new to Star Trek, where you might want to jump in at. There's no wrong place to, to start with Star Trek, in my opinion. Um, just like we've talked about this before, like I started with Next Gen, Eric started with Voyager, but that led him to getting into Deep Space Nine and all these other ones. So, again, nothing wrong with wherever you, you start. You might have already started with Discovery, and you're trying to figure out where you want to go next, and that's cool too. And we'll... We'll eventually get to Discovery, but that's going to be a little bit more difficult because it's currently on the air, and we don't have the full, um, what the full like breadth of 
we don't we don't have the full we don't have the full picture of what discovery will ultimately look like and how everything could potentially be tied together exactly exactly so um so again we'll we'll get into that um into some of these things as we as we go along so um let me just go ahead and kind of talk about some of the particulars and Eric, if there's something that you want to throw in when it comes to some of like the particulars of the show, uh, feel free to, and we'll just kind of trot along and do our best, um, to not boldly go too far off the trail. Sounds like a plan. Sweet. So Star Trek enterprise, like I said, this is a show that was on the air. Uh, it's a, it was a lot, another live action, uh, Star Trek show. And it premiered uh, September 26, 2001 on UPN. And this is airing like months after the series finale of Star Trek Voyager. Voyager went off the air, I believe it was um, May 13th. No, no, it was, it was like mid-May of 2001, basically. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing for those four months um, until, of course... Star Trek Enterprise, or just Enterprise at this point, I should say. Yeah, yeah, it was just called Enterprise for the first two seasons. Yes, and it was—they didn't even actually change the name to Star Trek Enterprise till episode three of season three. Yes, yeah. So there, there was a lot of a lot of movement that was going around when it comes to when it came to this particular show, and uh, the show ran for four seasons. Uh, and there were certainly some changes that happened over the course of four seasons, like any show does. But there was a very uh, there was a major contrast, I believe, that was was established starting in season three, both with the music and the storylines that took play, place. And we'll talk about the storylines a little bit later on. So, um, since I'm the music guy on this podcast, I think we need to talk about uh, the theme. The theme. Yeah, let's talk about this theme here, right? We get the we get the for the for the pilot episode, you get this teaser, cold open, whatever you want to call sure. it, that that's like four or five minutes long, whatever, right? And then we've been all of Star Trek, the original series, the Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. The opening was like this instrumental theme. Right, mm-hmm. and all of them. Some were good, some maybe were not so good. I shared my opinions. I think the Next Generation theme is just iconic. I think the Voyager theme is very good. I think the Deep Space Nine theme is terrible. And so you're watching the show, and you you expect this opening to be some instrumental theme, and then what happens? You get some singing. You get some singing. And this was <laughs> this was highly controversial, okay? Very, I mean, very controversial. Uh, it was it was what they were trying to do with this particular theme was they were trying to uh, trying to create uh, like a wider grasp at the audience basically um, by by changing up stuff with with this particular show um, you got to think that 
when you're when you're looking at where this is and what's been happening, there's been nonstop Star Trek since 1987, basically. Actually, you could you could, you could even go back a little further with that, and you could even say there's been nonstop Star Trek since like 1979, really, like with the movies. If you really want to argue that, right, with a movie coming out basically every two years, right. But if we're focusing just on the show. It's been nonstop since 1987. So up to this point, Star Trek on TV has been rolling nonstop for 14 years. By the time that Star Trek, uh, I'm sorry, Star Trek Enterprise, Enterprise, whatever, has aired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had 21 seasons of Star Trek, right, in a 14-year span. Correct. But and here we come. Gosh, what? that's just a that's a lot. When you, it is a lot. Like saying that out loud, dang, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> and and I do agree. I think at this point, Enterprise, as it was just called, was maybe trying to capture an audience. It wasn't necessarily focused on just the core audience that was there. I think it was they were trying to expand a little bit beyond that. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100% for sure. So this... This uh, song, "Where My Heart Will uh, Will Take Me," um, before I, before I really talk about about this, what just the song, just the song, not not it being Star Trek or anything, but just the song, Eric. What do you think of this song? I mean, I remember watching this episode back in two thousand one when it came on, and when that thing came on, I was like. Yeah, I'm, I'm liking this. This is kind of cool. And I like the way it was cut in with all like the pictures of early exploration. And I was digging it. And I was like, yeah. And I, for certain, I know that I had it on a burn CD. I put this, the full version of this, like three or four minutes, whatever, on a burn CD. And I was listening to this. And I, I liked it. I thought it was different. I thought it was cool. You know, after a while, you're like, all right, whatever, you know. But I, I enjoyed it, and I, I think it's a good song. I mean, the original version of the song is sung by Rod Stewart. Somebody else sings it um, for the open ear, but I like it. Yeah, so this was uh, originally written by uh, Diane Warren and performed by Rod Stewart for the soundtrack to the 1998 film Patch Adams. So uh, Patch Adams being... A movie that the late Robin Williams uh, was in, playing the, the titular character in that, and, which is also based off a true story um, of a doctor. But in the show, for this particular performance, it was performed by someone named Russell Watson uh, for for the the Enterprise theme song for Faith of the Heart on this particular show. And I gotta say that this particular uh, song that this uh, this uh, this theme song I love the heck out of it like you're saying and uh, you know whenever I need to get like pumped up or or whatever it might need to be or I'm just having like a crappy day like and I just need to feel inspired or lifted up or something I will purposefully turn this song on without exaggeration I love this song so much yeah it's a it's a good song oh yeah I mean, I I know people don't like it here. They like, oh, we need to be purists and just have some instrumental music. But this is a good song. Yeah, and I want to speak to that. And I promise I will not go 
in the weeds, into the weeds with this too much. But I think the song choice, the decision to do this, works uh, for a number of reasons. One of which I'll say is this. When you think about where this is set in the Star Trek timeline, okay, so this, where we're at in the timeline is the year 2151. So this is what we were talking like 88 years after the events of first contact with the Vulcans there in Bozeman, Montana. So 88 years after our first warp flight, we're getting ready to go into space. So we're not quite evolved. We're not quite utopian yet, like we've seen in in other iterations of Star Trek. So there's still this very human, very 20th, 21st century feel about us. So to have a more raw, emotional uh, type of, of music um, that can contrast it with the other other theme songs, I think is very appropriate. I would agree 100% with everything you just said. And the thing, the thing about that too is like if you look at at the other theme songs, okay, so um, like you were talking about Next Generation's theme song, which is also the Motion Pictures theme song with a little bit of a remix to a certain extent. That's what we would call more um, allegro. So allegro is it's going to be like a tempo that's going to have more uh, of a fast, quick, and a bright feel to it. So you're looking at about 100, 120 to 160 beats per minute. And this one in particular is going to be more uh, moderato, which is going to be more of like... 110 beats per minute. It's it's still kind. Of, it's still got some pep to it, but not as much as what Allegro would have. Um, and then let's not even talk about Deep Space Nine because that's just slow. It's it's yeah. But each but here's the thing. Just like I've said before, I think we started this music conversation in the first Engage episode. And if y'all haven't been listening to Engage, please check it out. I think you guys might enjoy it. But in there, that's where like all this music theory stuff like has really been marinating and stuff for me that each of the theme songs has really captured the feel of the show so we have deep space nine for example which has a more slower um maybe like an ariago potentially an, a moderato uh kind of of tempo but deep space nine is a more thoughtful show it's more philosophical even the, even more so than than tng i would say so. I would agree with that, and I and that makes sense. You know, you have a, a slower paced show, mm-hmm. and so you want a slower paced theme. Right, I get it. So I'm there. Um, so so what does the the screaming lady's voice on the end of the TOS theme mean? <laughs> right, because that's like a lady screaming at the end of it, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> do 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 do. I mean, that's that's kind of like a no. But then at the end, that lady's like. Oh! Like super high. How'd, th- how'd that go again, Eric? <laughs> I'm not doing that again. <laughs> I mean, that. W- I'm sure that. W- I'm sure that was terrible, and that hurt everyone's ears out there listening. Now we have to go like get send everyone like band aids and pay for like their ear check. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks a lot. By the way, if you'd like to help support with the medical bill, we're on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Please help us so we can help you. Oh, Lordy. Anyway, so... (laughs) 
<laughs> you like that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, good grief. But for the, for the most part, like all the incidental music, the theme music, the miscellaneous music that's going to be taking place throughout the series is very much uh, Jerry Goldsmith-esque like it has with the, the prior iterations of Star Trek, um, at least from like, you know, like the 70s onward, basically. So uh, that's one thing like you can really hear it like and some of them almost sound like rehashed or just reused themes incidental themes from the prior show. So just something to kind of think about as it links the whole uh, franchise um, as a collective whole together. Yeah. And then, um, so this theme, they, they keep this same theme for the first two seasons. And, and like I said, I enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. A lot of people didn't enjoy it. Didn't work for a lot of people. And sometimes it seems like the people that enjoy things the least are the most vocal. Yes. Right? So there was a lot of backlash, and starting with season three, they changed the theme a little bit. They do change the theme a little bit, and by a little bit, they change it a lot. And yeah, they, they, they make it a lot more up-tempo. You already said it was kind of, it was slower than the next generations, but it was still a little bit more up-tempo, but they really kick it into high gear. Yeah, they added a little bit more, more bass and strum to it, and it, it went from having this very... I don't want to say somber because it wasn't somber. It was it was like it was reflective yes, in a sense. To being more fun and country like. And I know we've joked around in different parts where it sounds more country bupkin, but I mean if you do go to YouTube or even Spotify or wherever you listen to music, or just watch the show, like turn on season one, listen to the intro, turn on season three and listen to the intro. And they're it's it's very very different, different. It's very different. Which, and we can get to this once we really get to season three. So this is kind of a teaser, but I didn't like the choice that they made with that for season three because season three we're going into a very very dark time for this show, and the music I feel did not capture the tone in which we were to be, you know, living in or experiencing for the show, but. It is what it is, and it's the the core of it is still the same. Which I think, if you really think about it, and this is kind of getting into like music appreciation territory, but if you think about it, there's there they are who they are as the casting, or I'm sorry, as the characters. They're they're the same. They're the same, and at the core, they're the same. But there's what they're going through is creating change and this music is also conveying this change so I can give it a pass but I don't like it I just don't like the season 3 and 4 theme song and it's the same yeah I, I, I wish they had kept it the same right the same arrangement but it is what it is they changed it because people complained and that happens sometimes boy does it happen <sighs> well, um, apart from that, um, there was uh, a little something else that uh, I wanted to do my best to, to point out, and it has to do with, uh, where'd it go? So it has to do with the overall Star Trek timeline, okay? So we know that... 
or we, we find out in the movie Star Trek First Contact that first contact with Vulcans, like our first warp flight, occurs on April 5th, 2063. We've already said that this happens um, 88 years. This is taking place 88 years after first contact. This is the first time we're actually going into space to, to explore and whatnot. And when, we, when we're looking at this stuff um, with how it fits into the overall narrative, one thing that's worth worth noting is that we've had other sh- we're going to have Star Trek Discovery that's going to pop up eventually and Star Trek Discovery takes place 10 years ish prior to um, Kirk show so before original series Star Trek basically so this is interesting to to really to really know that as of 2020 as of this year the year in which we're recording right now uh, the work where it's placed in the Star Trek timeline, Enterprise is the only Star Trek production whose continuity is not affected by the events of the 2009 film reintroducing the crew of James T. Kirk, making it the only TV series in the Star Trek universe to remain in continuity in both the prime and alternate realities. So just something to keep in mind, especially if you've already seen um, like 2009 Star Trek, Into Darkness, and beyond, that this, that Star Trek Enterprise is the only one that has been unaffected by anything. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, 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 that makes sense. That fits. Everything tracks with the dates there. Yeah, and the only thing, like, you get a little nod to, uh, to Star Trek Enterprise in the 2009 film. Uh, when Scotty talks about um, uh, beaming um, Admiral Archer's prized beagle. Yeah, but, but beagles, the beagle would be dead by then. Admiral and Archer would be dead by then, too, because if you think um, this is a hundred years before the original series. Yep, unless he's, like, hooked up to a machine and he's, like, being... Do- um, carried around like a, a certain evil emperor that we know it's possible really let's leave that alone moving on yeah let's let's not touch that <laughs> all right so um so with that like i said this is this this aired september 26 2001 um went off the air may 13th 2005 uh so this this went off the air was, just before we graduated high school this was our all on all through high school for us. It was. Right? It would have premiered. Would have premiered freshman year. Would have ended right before graduation. That's correct. And um, just so it's abundantly clear, this this show aired, you know, basically two weeks, fifteen days after the attacks in New York on the Twin Towers, and uh, the show does eventually kind of do their own take on that uh, eventually, which we'll we'll get to. So. You know, we have, we have, I would say, three distinct um, stories throughout this series. And before I identify those three, is there any, any kind of like uh, basic information or data or whatever that you would like to uh, kind of just submit before we start exploring some of these things uh, from a survey perspective? 
I'd like to just start before we get into the story with our captain. Sure. Right? Jonathan Arch Jonathan Archer and the actor who plays him, Scott Bakula. Okay. Okay. So Scott Bakula was on a television show before this called Quantum Leap. Right? He was the main character. He played Dr. Samuel Beckett. And Quantum Leap ran for five seasons, I want to say. I've seen Quantum Leap, but I think it's five seasons. Started in 88. I, I Don't quote me on that, but I think it's 88. Um, and he was on there. He was the main character. Quantum Leap is a fantastic show. If you have not seen it, I highly recommend you go and watch it. It is probably the best acted science fiction show of all time, in my opinion. But it's really carried by Scott Bakula's great performance and then his side character of Dean Stockwell. Right, Those are like the only two actors that appear in every episode. Fantastic show. And so when they were creating Enterprise, Scott Bakula was actually the first choice for the producers to play their new captain. He's the only person they wanted. And it was a big get. Right? To get Scott Bakula into this show was very big because it lent a lot of credibility and gravitas because he was so respected in the science fiction world. Absolutely. Right? And, and um, this character, Jonathan Archer, that he plays. A lot of people, when you do captain rankings, you'll see him probably at the bottom of most people's captain rankings. Which I think is kind of a shame, because I do like Captain Archer here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Captain Archer is an amazing captain, and he does not get enough credit at all from Trekkies, in my humble opinion. I mean, most I feel like most of the people try to put Captain Archer and look at him through the same prism that they would look at all of these other captains, but... He's not a Federation captain. He doesn't have all of the same rules and guidelines that that Kirk and Picard and Cisco and Janeway had. Nor does he have all of the experience of those captains to come before him. I think there's even one time where he says in an early episode, until excuse me, Starfleet comes up with a set of rules and guiding principles. All I have are my own morals and my own judgment. I don't have anything to go on. And so he's making everything up as he goes. And I, that is so hard to do. And I think we need to, like, respect and honor and, like, appreciate that fact. Absolutely. Yeah, and just like... Yeah. Well, let, let me just go ahead and say this. Um, uh, so it doesn't seem like I'm... I'm biased or not biased or whatever, but I've, I think I've told you, I know I told you pre-show Eric that, you know, when it comes to, uh, like favorite Star Trek shows and, uh, replay value and stuff for me, it's next generation enterprise deep space nine. And I think in that order is the same thing for captains for me too. I love me some Kirk. I love Janeway. Okay. Um, but because I watch these so much, I feel more connected to them. And I guess that does create a bias, but I'm just going to roll with it anyways. No, I, I, I like, I love me some C Captain Jonathan Archer here. I just, 
I just think we can't give him enough credit. Mm-hmm. And I I know he gets a lot of criticism, and some of it can be justified. But I think I think we really need to say this was a, a very underrated character. Yes, and you know while we're talking about the captain, real quick, and and then after this we'll we'll identify the three main arcs and kind of go from there and start stumbling if we need to. Um, <laughs> but we have, like you said, we have Scott Bakula as Captain Jonathan Archer. And uh, we also have um, some other cast members um, like John Billingsley, Jillian Blaylock, Dominic Keating, Anthony Montgomery, Linda Park, and Connor Trenier. And uh, I think at the same time, it wasn't at the same time, but it was shortly after the show went off the air that we saw Connor Trenier again in another major sci-fi series on Stargate Atlantis. And uh, he's creepy as heck. And I, I love I love Connor Trenier. He plays the, the chief engineer, uh, Charles Tripp Tucker, Commander Tucker. And uh, anyway, a- apart from um, Archer, let me, hold on, let me say this. John Billingsley was Phlox. Blaylock was T'Pol. Jolene Blaylock also shows up on Star Trek. Yes, she does. Well. In like the latter seasons of it. Um, yeah. of, st- of different shows. Connor Trenier shows up on Atlantis. Yes. And Jolene Blaylock is on SG. Yes, she is. Uh, Dominic Keating, who is the uh, tactical officer, Malcolm Reed. Anthony Montgomery as Travis Mayweather. Um, Ensign Travis Mayweather, who's the helmsman. And Linda Park, who plays Hoshi Sato, the communications officer. And. Um, Yeah, I, I really like this cast, except for one member <laughs> that I want to shove out an airlock. I think I think this cast is underused at some points. I don't know if you want to talk all about the cast right now, but I think uh, Hoshi and Travis, uh, our communications officer and our helms, were both very underused characters, and they never really got their due. They never got a lot of story focused on them. I'd agree, and I and I and I wish they got more because on the Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, every one of the main crew got a good amount of time to step forward into the into the front and got their own episodes, and I don't really feel like that happens here. Yeah, I think on Enterprise, I think that happens in all of all of uh, you know eighties and nineties Star Trek. That you're right. Like with it being an ensemble cast, there was yeah. there was a regular rotation for the most part of right. of character centric episodes, and I feel like you get that a little bit in the first season, maybe of of Enterprise, but then it kind of just kind of fades away. Right. It it does feel like more of a show with a lead character and supporting characters as opposed to an ensemble show. Yes. Yes. So uh, let's, I guess from from that, this show has three distinct uh, storylines for the most part. Um, we have the, the Temporal Cold War. We have the Zindi. And we also have like more diplomacy and then the founding of the, the UFP, the United Federation of Planets. And... The, the main one that seems to run the longest is the Temporal Cold War, with it more or less coming to a close at the beginning of Season 4. 
Yeah, that temporal cold war, <coughs> while it's not like the full complete story through the first three seasons, it it is there and it pops itself back up before it is it starts in the pilot episode and it's wrapped up in the season four two part premiere. Yeah, Stormfront, I believe, is the yeah. Stormfront. Stormfront, yep. So So Yeah, go ahead. I actually enjoy the concept of the temporal cold war, right? This idea of different factions from the future, like trying to control history to maybe potentially rewrite the past. I think it's a very interesting idea. I think there are moments where it's not executed as well as it could have been. And I think a lot of the criticism of it, because the temporal cold war is heavily criticized. It is the general consensus, I feel like, maybe this is the general consensus from the more vocal crowd, is that it's not that good of a storyline. But I enjoy it. I do, too. Um, and part of the reason I enjoy it is because uh, I'm a student of the Cold War, like the one that happened following World War II, the, the real Cold War. And just to see a Star Trek take on that, so to speak... I really, really liked. Uh, I mean, we, we see like regular Cold War stuff going on in the original series, even in Next Gen, with like Klingons and Romulans and things like that. But this take I felt was very fresh, even though it was heavily derided. Yeah, yeah, it was not well received. But one of the things that I really like about it, um, so. We had the next generation, which, you know, we were a ship in space, our mission of the week. And then we had Voyager, which was our ship in space, mission of the week. And those two shows don't really lend themselves to a lot of recurring side characters. Sure. And then Deep Space Nine, being set on a space station, right, really, like, really was able to highlight these recurring side characters that either lived on the station or could come visit the station. And I think one of the things that the Temporal Cold War does is it allows these side characters, right, these recurring side characters that are not possible in the next generation in Voyager. And I really I really like that because I think that just adds something to the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, with, like, the... We have the Suliban being, like, the main baddie for a little while these camouflage DNA altered alien species that yeah who take who take their orders from shadow man yes some random do some random shadowy zordon looking figure from the future <laughs> zordon looking figure that's good i like that i never thought about that but that's good <laughs> he's a, he's in a tube right giving out orders yeah he, yeah he is no i can totally i know i don't know why i never thought of that wow <laughs> oh man guys here we go here we go here we go but that yeah we have like this the the, the cabal right that's what they're calling themselves like they're part of the cabal to as one of these factions that we're talking about with uh, this temporal cold war and and stuff like that and you really it's that's certainly established in this first episode in the in the pilot episode of 
of a enterprise with the the two-part episode broken bow and i know that you and i had watched it just real quick prior to recording uh just to stay fresh on on stuff and if you haven't seen it go watch it after this it's it's good stuff yeah it's it's a very entertaining episode Right, it definitely moves at a quick pace. It's not going to be your slow plotting episode. No, no, and it does a good job of of setting people up and and pulling them in. And you still, and like we, I was saying, you get like that, you know, twenty first century feel. Like you can really relate to these characters more than you can say Kirk or Kirk's crew or Picard's crew because these people are are more connected to who we are presently. Than this utopian future. So another reason I, I like it. Yeah, it's definitely not the Hilton in space where we're all cushy and evolved. It's much more, you know, gritty and realistic and and closer to where we are today as humans. Yeah, and there's no butthole drama like we have on other movies and shows. Did I say that one? exactly sure what you are referring to but okay moving on <laughs> okay moving on moving on bring out your dead but so we get we get the Sulaban are like the main baddies in this temporal cold war and they're the cabal they take their orders from shadow man zordon which i think it which i think is actually how the character is referred to mm-hmm. in the in the credits is just shadow man but they're led by their the foot soldiers. Suleiman are led by a man named Silic, played by an actor named John Fleck, who is a character actor. He's been around for a long time. He's been in he's been in other Star Trek things. I think before he was in the pilot movie for Babylon Five. He's one of the the main antagonists in that. Good character actor. This guy Silic. Yeah, and. We we see just like we see any character evolve over the course of a of a TV series. At least you'd hope they evolve over the course of a TV series or movie. You you really see Silic evolve too. Um, just and I don't, I don't want to give too much away because like you certainly do see an evolution of him over the show. Right, and 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 I, I called Silic like the the main bad guy, but I don't necessarily think he's a bad guy, like. Can we differentiate between antagonist and bad guy? Those don't necessarily have to mean the same thing, do they? No. I mean, would you call him like an anti-hero, kind of like a Darth Vader type of person? I don't know if I would call him an anti-hero. That's tough. He's in this gray area. I, I just... I just, I just feel like he's he's he, I don't want to compare Silic to Golducott because I don't think there is a comparison. But for me Golducott is not truly a bad guy. He's an antagonist. I mean, at the end he becomes a bad guy, but throughout most of the story I just think he's a patriot and he's trying to do everything he can for his people, whatever that may be, and his his what's best for his people is not what's best for the federation and so we tend to think of that as oh he's the bad guy and silic is nowhere near as developed or as good of a character as goldie cod so i don't know if this is a complete good comparison but i just feel like silic is a patriot he wants what's best for his people 
right? And what's best for his people is not necessarily what's best for us as the Federation. Sure. And I think with you drawing the comparison between Silic and, and Gul Dukat from Deep, Deep Space Nine, you know, Gul Dukat, uh, especially for those that have seen Deep Space Nine and can, you know, relate to what I'm about to say, he's, he is a patriot. He's, he's a very much a three-dimensional character and he's got good parts and bad parts. There's more bad than there is good, but he's, he's got that about him. So in the same vein, you know, we have that with Silic where he's, he's not as fully realized as Gold Dukat is because we get a full seven seasons with Dukat pretty much and, and the ebbs and flows of his character. And we, we kind of get that with him. So I, I do understand what you're saying, and I can get on board with what you're saying, Eric, about about this particular particular character, and and that he's not a hundred percent antagonist, but he's still an antagonist. Right, and and he like there are moments where we form an uneasy alliance with him, right, and we have to work together in the same way that we have to work together with Gold Dukat at certain moments. Right. Or the Ferengi, if you really want to talk about the Ferengi. So, in in other iterations of Star Trek, so <clears throat> we, it, we we might be getting in the weeds with him, but but that's okay. So, for those that have seen it, I'm wondering what you guys might think about kind of like what we're saying and kind of like what we're wrestling with when it comes to Silic in the story of of Enterprise and Archer's crew. So, I'll leave that to y'all. They're listening. Okay, and then who's our other major side character that comes up in the Temporal Cold War? Daniels. Uh, Agent Daniels. Yes. I right. I like Who Daniels. Is... Okay, I like him too. And I don't get the hate that that people give him. Is there a lot of hate directed toward Daniels? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he... Is there? Yeah. From what I've what I've come across, people just can't stand Dan- Agent Daniels, and the best way I can describe Agent Daniels for anyone that hasn't seen Enterprise is he's like the Phil Coulson of of Star Trek, pretty much from like Marvel, basically. But that's that's how I would do it, like both in appearance and kind of in action. You're giving me a look, Eric, and I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't see that. I don't see Phil Coulson here. Because Phil Coulson is a beloved character. Okay. Like, everyone loves Phil Coulson. I love me some Phil Coulson. <laughs> right? Sure. I don't I don't see Daniels in that vein. I, I, I kind of maybe see what you're saying because he's like, he's not the guy in charge, but he's like, well, like a point guy in the field. Sure. Yeah. Right? So I understand that. Right? Yeah. I mean, I can kind of see it, but I just, I love me some Phil Coulson, right? A lot more than I love me some Agent Daniels sure. here. Sure, sure. Okay. Well. And and Phil Coulson has universal praise. No one dislikes Phil Coulson. That's true. Okay. Well, still, he's, he's this primary contact and popping in and out of this temporal Cold War, um, more or less... I think he's like only communicating with with Captain Archer throughout the the first three and a half four seasons of of 
this show. So uh, taking him way into the future. And one thing that, that, that is cool, and, and I don't mean to just jump around too much, but we are talking about the Temporal Cold War, is the thing that's, that's really neat is that up to this point, there have only been five ships, not counting this one, to bear the name Enterprise in the Federation. Okay, the NCC-1701, then the A, B, C, and D, and then E, eventually. Um, but in this show, not, on, not only is it the NX-01 named Enterprise, but we also get a future look at a universe-class Enterprise, the Enterprise-J. The Enterprise-J, we briefly see it, right, in the background when um, Daniels pulls Archer into the future. Yes, and here's something, just a fun fact for, um, for anyone that might be wondering. You can get, um, hold on, let me back up. When, when this happens, you can like, look briefly at a terminal in that episode where they're on the J. So there's an episode where, where uh, Daniels takes Captain Archer onto this future Enterprise ship, the J. And it's massive, man. It is friggin' huge. And you can see on a terminal what this thing looks like. And that's pretty much all you get to see is how is what that looks like on a terminal. In 2006... Yeah, that, that's, what, that's what I meant by the background. Yes. I, you saw you in the terminal in the background. So in 2006, there was a, an official Star Trek calendar that came out called Ships of the Line. And one of the months, it had the full rendering of the USS Enterprise 1701J for people to look at. And in fact, if you uh, go to our Facebook group, the cover photo that we have is Ships of the Line. And if you click on the cover photo, uh, you'll actually see the Enterprise J in that cover photo. You have to, but it's, it's huge. And it's like, it looks really skinny. So it's like Time Lord technology, how people fit into that thing. Yeah, it is very skinny. I will give you that. So everyone's on a diet in the future so they can fit in that ship. They're <laughs> <laughs> going to the gym. <laughs> yeah, but this this temporal cold war it it adds some really cool moments. I think that season one finale, like I think this is something that shouldn't. I don't know how we're, we're talking about spoilers here or not. Um, but Star Trek is known for its cliffhangers. Almost every season ends with some kind of cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Some of them work, some of them maybe not quite so much. But the season one of Enterprise ends on a cliffhanger. It's something to do with this temporal Cold War. And that is a, I think that's a fantastic cliffhanger that for me just left me like, what? We have to wait three or four months to see how this is going to end? And I was just, I really enjoyed that, that story right there. Yeah, how in the world is someone going to make stuff work again? Yeah, we'll leave it at that. So, yeah, this this will be partially spoiler-free. So we won't reveal, like, specific, like, episodic moments, kind of like with this, this cliffhanger, but we can talk about, like, the bigger storyline. So, depending with broad strokes, of course. So... Uh, anyway, so this this particular storyline, like I said, this takes us up until the season four 
uh, premiere. Okay, Stormfront Part 2. And it's at the very end of this that Archer more or less tells Agent Daniels off. Yeah, he basically tells him, go shove it and leave my crew out of your your little your little thing. Yes. And I will say one thing, and this isn't meant to be a direct connection to uh, Discovery by any means, okay? But one thing that you and I were talking about, Eric, was we were, we were musing about how far we've gone into the future in Star Trek, and we've had moments where we said, I think, like the 29th century or this century or whatever century um, in different storylines, and when we're looking at Shockwave... This is taking place, like part of the story is taking place in the 31st century. So even though they might go into the 31st century for like a hot second, it's not anywhere near as far as what Discovery's trying to do in their future season. So just wanted to point that out because I know we've had that as a conversation in the past. Yeah, we have had that as a conversation. Sure. All right. Uh, is there anything about the temporal Cold War that you want to continue talking about before we kind of talk about this next part that's kind of like uh, compacted within it? Well, I mean, I guess I'll just say that the temporal Cold War is never the the driving force behind these first couple of seasons or I know it goes through all the way through three seasons and ends in the fourth it's never the driving force but it is a recurring story that weaves its way into everything yes yeah and and we really don't get a driving force storyline until we get to season three which like we were saying at the top of the show that's when there's a tonal shift both in music and in storytelling and uh, I think the first two seasons is best described as uh, just discovery. We're just discovering things and we're figuring out what it means to be, you know, explorers in space and right. how to carve our own path. That's really the storyline of the first two seasons. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think the first two seasons, uh, both the characters on the show and the show itself are trying to find their way. Okay. Right, and it, it is much more of the episodic, right, story of the week. We're going to solve our problem by the end of it, and we're learning what it is to be in space, right, and um, are we prepared to be out here or not. Right, and one thing I will say as a positive about, about this show, and, you know, you, Eric, and those listening are certainly welcome to, to disagree with me, but I did not dislike... Enterprise, anywhere near as much as I did the the first seasons of other Star Trek shows. So this was the least disliked. Did I say that right? Yeah, the least disliked Star Trek season one for me. If I'm going to rank the season ones of every show, the original series has the best season one. And I don't think anyone can dispute that. I think all of the classic episodes that you think of from the original series are in season mm-hmm. one. Not all of them, but most of them. Most of them. I would put Voyagers season one second, and then I would put Enterprises season one third. Okay. Right. I think Enterprises season one is better than both the Next Generations and Deep Space Nine's. 
Yes. Because Deep Space Nine's Deep Space Nine's first season is terrible. Yeah, with them playing um, hopscotch, the come along. Yeah. Move along home. Yeah, move, move along yeah, home. Move, no, no. 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 Just no. No. <sighs> We're still talking Star Trek, right? We okay. are. Okay. Very much. Just so. checking. All right. All right. So the the next major storyline is the Zindi, which we talk about the Zindi as being season three, but it really starts at the end of season two. Correct. That yeah, that's fair. But you you get most of the story and all that really the entirety of season three. Uh, but yes, they they are certainly introduced in the season two finale of Enterprise and. So that's that's the point of demarcation because, like I was saying, tonal shift. We're getting a shift in everything. We're getting a shift in story. We're getting a shift in music, and we're even getting a shift in the show name. We're going from Enterprise to Star Trek Enterprise. We're trying to define our identity in this show at this point. We're trying to just—I don't even know. Like I'm, I'm at a loss for words right now, but I think you get what I'm saying. Like with all these changes that are happening right here at this point in the story for the show. Right. I think the show was never the ratings. This particular show never got the ratings that Voyager got. And I think this shift was a response to a drop in ratings. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And just like we were saying, let me, let me just go ahead and just go there for a second. What we see in the conclusion of of season two and the season two finale, we see this uh, orb. We see this probe or, or something. Yeah, they they call it a probe in the show. Yeah, and that comes and it blasts a destructive laser beam down. Base basically from Orlando to Havana, Cuba. Basically, and. Uh, so many lives lost in this particular storyline and that is the impetus for what happens and what they do next and the evolution of the show next we're not really giving anything away by any means uh, so let's kind of let's talk about that let's let's talk about this season three Zindi thing it's it's very very connected and I know there was there was a part of of this particular storyline that you really wanted to touch on as well well what I just wanted to say is we have the next generation, which is very much just episode of the week, you know, problem of the week. We're concluding every, we're concluding everything by the end of the episode. And then Deep Space Nine comes along and it kind of throws that out the window. And it has not necessarily like always season long arcs, but Deep Space Nine was known for doing a lot of two part episodes. Whereas the next generation really wasn't. And so we see Deep Space Nine being a lot more serialized. And we reach, finally we reach season six of Deep Space Nine, which starts out with the Dominion War. Mm -hmm. Right? And the Dominion War for season six and seven really, like, takes up all of the story. It's basically one big story. It's not fully one big story because we can weave different things in and out of it but we get this big serialized idea and I think it's fantastic I know a lot of people didn't like it because it didn't feel 
as much Star Trek. Like they wanted more of the episode of the week. Um, and then so Voyager came around, and this was one of the good things that I think was happening because Voyager and um, Deep Space Nine were basically on at the same time, right? Um, Deep Space Nine was only on for half of a season by itself. So Deep Space Nine didn't have to be everything for everyone. If you didn't like Deep Space Nine, you could go to Voyager. And I know Voyager, um, when they got to season four, the original plan for season four of Voyager was to be the year of hell. Right? There's an episode in season three where we introduce the concept of the year of hell. And then in Voyager, there's a two-part episode just called The Year of Hell, which I think is a fantastic episode. But the original plan was for that to be all of season four, and it would be one big story, The Year of Hell. But the producers finally came in at the very end of the day, and they nixed that idea because they didn't want both shows, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, that were on at the same time, having one big, long story arc. And so here we come to Enterprise, and the, the writers and the producers really wanted to do a big, long, season-long arc that they weren't able to do on Voyager, and that's why they created this Zindi arc. Right, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, too, if I'm wrong about this, Eric, but I believe that the Zindi arc was also an examination of 9-11 here in the States as well. Oh, absolutely. It was absolutely based on that. And and like I, I said a number of times when we started this particular episode, that this this show premiered 15 days after the 9-11 attacks in New York. So this was fresh. Like, they had already, you know, probably wrapped most of... of of the season or a good chunk of it and they were mid-stride so it wasn't appropriate for them to do something immediately but the fact that they were able to return to it and have like this Star Trek take on 9-11 I thought was fantastic oh I I think it's fantastic too and it is if you don't see the um, the influence from 9-11 I'm not sure you're paying enough attention Especially with how we're looking at the different uh, uh, factions. Would you call it factions within the Zindi? Well, yeah, there's different Zindi species. So we have uh, the insects, the was it the reptiles, the, rep, the reptilians. We have the the mammals, the, or was it the mammals? Or it was it was the the insects, the reptiles, the humanoids. The arboreals and the aquatics. That's right. Thank you. And just seeing them and kind of like where they are in what they're going to do, what they're wanting to do to defend themselves about something. Because this is still, the, the temporal Cold War is still more or less influencing some of the decisions or a decision that's made resulting in what the Zindi do. Yeah, I, I've, I've always uh, taken that the the sphere builders who were influencing the Zindi were a part of the temporal cold war. Mm -hmm. I've always believed that. Absolutely. And I totally lost what I was going to say, but, but this is very much, very, very much a, a look at like a raw emotion of what 
we as Americans were were kind of feeling and experiencing and how we were looking at other nations, I would say, if I can go be as bold to say that, um, I, I feel like we were, we had some, we did, we certainly had some very strong feelings about people and situations at that time. Would you agree or partially agree? I would 100% agree with that. I think, right, when you suffer such a tragedy, you want, the natural reaction is just to be angry, right, and to somewhat want to understand what happened and why, but also at the same time, maybe you don't care why, maybe you just want to to, to strike back. You just want to hurt them. You want to make them feel the pain that you're feeling. And it's, it's one thing I really liked the one positive thing, if I can just say this right now, Eric, and, and for those listening, that I can still remember where I was when I found out what happened in New York. And I can also remember the response to all of us at that time as Americans when this happened. Like how we came together and for the most part, not all of us, but I would say a lot of us came together, put our crap aside, and we were actually the uni- we were literally the United States of America at that time. Yes, there was patriotism was at maybe an all time high. I don't want to say all time high, but patriotism was very high. Yes, at that moment. Yeah, and I'm just getting I'm literally getting goosebumps as I think about that, um, and the fact that. You know, we have people now through no fault of their own that don't know what that's like um, to feel that way, to think that way, to have experienced something like that. I mean, you and I, we were 14 years old when that happened for crying out loud. So that's just crazy to think about. Anyway, I got off on a sidetrack, but but it's it's I think I think that's good because I think that's always what Star Trek has tried to do. And I've said this many times: is is be a prism and a mirror to look back on our society today, in maybe a way that contemporary shows can't do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess to yeah, and to continue with that thought that, and I, I've probably already said it before, and I'm a broken record, but I don't care. Like, they did such a good job of capturing the thoughts, the way of life, the, the feelings, all that stuff that we, we as Americans were feeling, that even the world was feeling, not, not just Americans, but predominantly us as Americans were feeling when this happened. They did such a good job, both in the season two finale, all the way through to the payout that we got, end of season three, beginning of season four. Yeah, I think it's really fantastic. Um, and that payout, I know we think of season three as being one big long story, but I really, at some point, maybe it's not a big long story. There are self-contained episodes in here, um, but I think the final three episodes are just fantastic, right? Where it's the council countdown and zero hour, right? Where we finally come face to face with our, our enemy, right? At this point they're not all our enemy and I think 
I think that's fantastic that we were we were able to not just um, present a story where hey these are the bad guys and we have to go hurt them but we were able to work through our differences with some of them and try to change their opinions yeah and, and I think that really comes to play in that episode the council with Archer and Degra yeah and I liked what they did to in a way with with how they they accomplished that um I'm a little nervous to say I, this I, based I on what I really you like that episode. I think that episode, The Council, for me, I think that's the best episode of the entire series. Yeah. I really like that episode. The thing, going going along with like the 9-11 stuff and like just the raw emotion and feelings and thoughts and stuff that we were, we were having, I'm not going to say all, but I would say a good majority of Americans would... Anytime they saw someone like a female wearing a hijab or someone of Middle Eastern, you know, descent, they were automatically the enemy. And I I can remember, and I think you might have known him too because we went to the same high school, but there was a guy named Kashif that uh, was in our grade. I went to to eighth grade with him. I didn't go to the middle school. I went to uh, Warwick uh, for middle school. And... I knew nothing about anything like when it came to anything but you know Christianity and stuff and Catholicism and whatever I'm not Catholic or anything but like and like I just saw him as a person in eighth grade and I still saw him as a person in ninth grade but there was a shift and again going I'm not saying that I'm racist I don't want that to be the message that you guys are hearing please don't hear that but that was the tone that people were experiencing and and again Star Trek really hit that nerve well in in the form of the Zindi and and then discovering like no we have we actually have some stuff in common they're not actually all our enemy that was a beautifully done job with the Zindi story arc right I think I think Degra is a fantastic character I think he is very well written he's got such good character growth just within this one season that he shows up and we see like I was saying before he's he's a patriot right he's not a bad guy and just to be able to work through our differences with him and to come to some commonality I think is just a fantastic thing to see I I 100% agree with that and you are correct going going back to what you're saying that you know people do see people that have seen enterprise may consider season 3 to be one big long you know connected story like one serialized story but you're right there are individual episodes individual storylines i should say in there that are sprinkled in and uh yeah but but it's it's still still a great great season uh with what they do so where are we at now, Eric? Are we, do we need to talk anything else about the Zindi and and season three, or or what do you want to do next? I think I think we've covered the Zindi, and I, I just I really enjoy that story. I know that not everyone did because it was if you felt like you missed an episode, um, then it was hard to catch up. And I want to say from my personal experience. Um, I, I watched Star Trek, you know, Voyager, every episode as it premiered from 95 
and then I watched the first two seasons of Enterprise, and season three of Enterprise was actually where I stopped watching on the regular, because I feel like I missed a few episodes, um, and so I got behind, and this is the point that I was no longer watching it on a regular basis, so from my own personal experiences thrown in there. Okay. So I would I would have to come back to this at a later date to get the conclusion of it. I didn't stop watching not because I didn't like it. I just there were things going on in life. I still think the show was on Wednesdays at this moment. I know season four got moved to Fridays. I still think it was on Wednesdays in season three. That sounds right. And yeah, like Fridays but, you know, Fridays you were in life, football and we were either football or camping. Yeah, and so life got in the way and I just missed some episodes and I felt like I was behind. And a lot of people felt like this one singular story, right, if they missed, they got behind and it wasn't as well received as I think it is now. I think it, I think it's looked back on more fondly now than it was at the time. Okay. Okay. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, and um, with, this, with this show uh, taking place before Kirk... And all the other captains that ever captained the the original 1701, uh, we the insignia is more or less like a, just a patch that we see. And this was something I didn't mention. And I, this is an appropriate time to bring it up. I want to say, uh, but we have we have just the the patch insignia um, that they wear on the left shoulder, uh, and then in this in season three we have um, some people attached to the, the Enterprise while they're doing this, this really deep space exploration going after these bad guys, these Zindi that we've been talking about. And the Mako um, is what, what I'm talking about. And yeah, the mi- Military Assault Command. Yes. And you look at their, their insignia, and it's, it's a star, and with the, the top point really extended like we see on uh, later insignia for Starfleet. And I've read that this is the part where the two, like the military side and the exploration side, that was like more or less the genesis for the the eventual uh, Delta that we we see, um, particularly with with the uh, the TOS and uh, TOS movie era stuff, right? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. So there, that's what the because we don't really see much in the way of Makos um, following this, that it's more or less been consolidated. And that's where we also have like more of the the ground ranks also. So like we also have Renee, uh, we were talking about not too long ago, who also plays Colonel West in the movies. So Colonel is a ground rank, which is the equivalent of a captain for naval ranks. So uh, Colonel, like again, is more ground and assaultive and stuff like that um, so just wanted to kind of connect that together because this is where we're seeing the Mako insignia and how that's kind of connecting the two into the future of Starfleet and the Federation yeah mm-hmm. all right and I think after this we're after this next part we're pretty much in the clear in terms of storyline so this final season season four of Star Trek Enterprise we're talking more about diplomacy or, or becoming or focusing more on diplomacy as well as 
finally the foundation of the Federation. Yeah. I love season four of Enterprise. It is got to be one of my favorite seasons of Star Trek. Like, if you were just to rank the individual seasons, this one would be very high. I, I love the heck out of this season. This is very, very, very good Star Trek, except for one episode. Right, and what I like about this is instead of taking the, the path of doing one big story... We get these little three-episode stories, right, where we don't have to rush through and get everything done in one episode, but we're going to take two and three episodes to really tell these these little mini-stories, and I just love this. So one of which is The Augments, which has uh, Brent Spiner playing um, his Data's ancestor, right? Yeah, Eric Soong. Eric Soong, which is a predecessor to uh, Khan Union or Noonien Soong. No, no. No, he's not a pre. He's a. He's coming. Uh, I'm sorry. Well. A successor. Successor. Anyways, words. He's a, words are hard today. He's a, he's a predecessor of Data's creator. Yes, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. So, anyway, so we have we have that particular storyline. It was great seeing um, Brent Spiner back in Star Trek again as his self without makeup, pretty much, apart from some powder here and there. And he gets to show emotions. He does. And one thing that's kind of cool um, in this, what they're calling the augments, I believe is was was it, um, is he starts to think about and musing about like positronic and artificial intelligence towards the end, which is pretty neat. Yeah, he says at the end, hmm, maybe if I can't do augments, maybe I should think about cybernetics. Yeah. Which was, was pretty cool. Nice little nod and connection. Which is just cool. Yeah, a little nod and wink of the eye. Yeah. Um, so we get that. We get, um, at the tail end, we get RoboCop himself coming in to hang let's, out with us. Let's 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 save that one. Let's, let's do this in order. Okay, we can I do that. save that one to the end. Okay. So we get we get the the um, the augment storyline. Yes. The next the next one is the what's it's referred to as the Vulcan Awakening. Which this is probably my favorite of those little mini arcs is the Vulcan Awakening one here. What about it specifically, Eric? Well, one of the big criticisms I think of Enterprise is that the Vulcans were portrayed so differently than they had been in Star Trek before. A lot of people said these aren't Vulcans. What their emotions are too close to the surface. They don't follow enough logic. And I'm always thinking, well. It's a hundred years before the original series. I mean, just think of how much humans have changed in the past hundred years in real life, right? So it makes sense that they're not the same, that they're going to be different. Yeah. And and I just, I love the way that this connects to everything from, we get the character of Tapau, who is there in um, the episode of Muck Time. She's like running the, like, the ritual fight between Kirk and Spock when he's going through the Ponfar. So it's like this connection. Mm-hmm. Right? And we get, we talk about Katras, right? Where we know Spock put his Katra in Dr. McCoy. Absolutely. And we get like, Archer gets a Katra put into him. And, um, it just, it brings together like all of our characters that we've seen throughout this entire show, doesn't it? I mean, Admiral Forrest is there at the end. R.I.P. Admiral Forrest. 
Um, it brings in, it brings in, um, Shran shows up. That's cool, right? It just, everybody is brought into this one story. And I think we can definitely see the beginnings of the foundation of the Federation here. Yes, with the the Andorians, the Vulcans, for sure. And and, and even the Romulans show up. Was there... I, I'm drawing a blank on this. Was there an on-screen appearance by the Tellarites in this season? Yeah, the Tellarites show up in the next storyline. Okay. In the next little mini-arc. Because the Tellarites are one of the founding planets for the Federation, so I was... Thank you for clarifying that. I was blanking on that. Um... But yeah, like, you know, with this and seeing, you know, the the whole Katra thing with Archer and, you know, like you're saying, seeing these more uh, emotional Vulcans, right, before they learn to really keep it in check is a very good contrast. And not only that, but like we're seeing them. We've we've seen um, the Borg also in Star Trek Enterprise. Um, here and there, or actually, just just one episode. Just just the one. Just the episode. one episode, not not here and there. But we're getting these callbacks or these look twos, whatever you want to call it, to these other characters that we've seen in other uh, editions of Star Trek. So, yeah, and and it's not Desert Crossing, is it? That's not the name of the episode, is it? No, the episodes. It's called uh, the Forge, Awakening, and Kirshara. Okay, those are the three names. And very, very, very well done uh, storyline for uh, for Star Trek Enterprise with the Vulcans. That's one of my favorite storylines, actually, and you'd think I'd know the name of the episode by now. No, I mean episode names. Like, there's a lot of similar ones. Like, there is a desert crossing in this episode, and there is an episode called Desert Crossing. Which is why I so. thought that, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I'll go reprimand myself and throw myself in the brig later. Just send pizza or something and I'll be okay. Alright, I can do that. Roger that. Okay, so what's the next little mini story? The next little mini story is the one, it's the, it's basically this is like where we see all of the Federation people come together. We get humans, Vulcans, Andorians, and Tellarites. Mm-hmm. Right, it's the, it's even, the first episode is called Babel One. Right after the classic original series episode called Journey to Babel. Babel. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think and I really like this storyline. Which it, it's good. I I don't I really don't remember seeing Tellarites up to this point, and I don't know why. I well, think that. Well, I think there's only one episode with a Tellarite in it before, and it's in season two, toward the end, where. Um, one of them comes on board the ship and, uh, like, kidnaps Captain Archer because he's going to use him and he's going to ransom him to the Klingons to get his ship back. Yeah. That's sort of the end of season two. But it's it's really good really, really seeing these, these founding members in this show. That's one thing I really, really, really like about Star Trek Enterprise is you 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 see the main players you know start out not really liking each other and then it ends up working out in what it culminates in eventually in this show yeah and and correct me if i'm wrong but we see some 
Tellarites and Andorians in the original series, but we don't see another one again until we get to Enterprise. That, so- that sounds right, yeah. Like, there's, there's not a single Andorian or Tellarite in the next generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. No. But then we see Tellarites later on in, uh, what is it, Discovery and even Picard more recently. There's Tellarites in Picard? Yeah. Yeah, there was a Tellarite in um, uh, Episode 1 whenever the news reporter is interviewing Picard. There's a Tellarite. That's a, that's a Tellarite? Well, not the lady, but there is a Tellarite in there. No, no, but in, I, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Like, that's not a Tellarite. That's what, that's what they're saying. Well, then they change the look of the Tellarites again because, right, when the Tellarites show up in Discovery, they've got tusks all of a sudden when they never had tusks before. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a tusk dude, tusk person in Star Trek Picard. Go check it out. It's in Remembrance whenever they're doing the interview. Okay. Yeah. All right. But I, like I said, I, I, you said this as well. I really like how we get to see all of these people coming together. Like the episode, first one, like I said, is called Babel 1 after the episode Journey to Babel. The second episode is called United. So it's like we are united and we are coming together as this united federation here. Yeah. And I want to do this and let me just pause pause for just a second since we're talking about like the founding of the federation. One of the things that I had talked about wanting to do uh, in like episode zero of this podcast was talking about Star Trek history, talking about battles and the founding of the Federation and like more of the Federation history and Starfleet history and stuff like that, more so than just, you know, shows and, and extraneous stuff. So I want, I want to say this to not only Eric, but to the listeners that I know want to hear that we are going to do that. It's not me ignoring that. We are going to do that. Part of what we're doing, again, is we're talking survey information so that we know where we've been with our shows before we really get into the weeds with like the history. That's part of the, the method to my madness with what we've been doing up to this point. So, uh, you know, we have some stuff planned out for the next few months in terms of what we're going to be covering, one of which is certainly going to be starting a a Federation history series of sorts. It's not going to be a one-and-done kind of thing like we have with these other episodes. So I just wanted to point that out. Didn't mean to interrupt this whole, you know, train of thought completely, but I thought it was worth mentioning at this point. No, I like that idea very much. Sweet. Uh, but yes, we're, like you said, we're we're meeting them, That we're, we're slowly coming together, with, um, but yes, we're we're starting to meet them and and go from there, and uh, in, in coming together as as a federation. So, anyway, um, yeah, seeing the Tellarites, the Andorians, the Vulcans, and the humans all at once is is just fantastic. Yeah, it really is. All right, so. Where are we at now? We're I think have we the hit next, the, the next that one is the Klingon augment story. There's like a little two-part Klingon augments, which is where they try to explain why Klingons in the original series yes. don't have cranial ridges. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that's that's 
something. And we, we see that. So there's there's a lot of connections to this, right? So let we have, you know, 1960s Star Trek where they just look like humans with a tan. And then... They're, they're supposed to be Asians, really. There we go. That's what, I mean, that was what Gene Roddenberry said. I think part of what Gene Roddenberry was also trying to do was he was trying to reconnect with a wartime buddy of his, which is why he kept using the name Khan and either Singh or Soong in for, for multiple characters because there was a wartime buddy that he lost contact with and he was n- using those names to get his attention to try and reach out to him. And I don't know if it ever worked out or not with being able to reconnect. That is interesting. I was not aware of that. Yeah. So you, you hear Khan and then sing and sing a lot. And that was, yeah, that was part of it. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, so apart from that, apart from these Klingons that we see in the original series, we also see there's different looking Klingons in the movie, so starting in the 1979 movie, and that's kind of like the look that's adopted with certain variations up until this point. And we see the that 1979-style cranial ridge-ish Klingon even in Broken Bow, which is the, the pilot of, um, of Enterprise, which it's what you've seen like with Worf and Gowron and Martok and all the other Klingons, basically. And it's in... Um, Trials and Tribulations, a Deep, Deep Space Nine episode, which is also the 30th anniversary, like homage episode, basically of Star Trek, where they go back in time and do this thing where they're able to interact with the original crew, and that's where uh, Worf says the or says um, we don't talk about that when referring to not having ridges. Yeah, yeah, they're they're all sitting in like the little bar area. And Worf says, there's Klingons over there. And, like, O'Brien and everyone looks around like, where? I don't see any Klingons. He's like, Worf's like, over there. Like, those are Klingons? Why do they look so funny? And Worf says, we don't talk about that. (laughs) And it was just like, there was no explanation in universe. And this two-part serial tried to address why that happened. And I liked it. Um, I think it worked. Uh, I think it, was, it worked too, and that's where I know you don't want to talk about it. I, I think I know what you're gonna bring it up. Go ahead. Do you think that with not only with what Doctor Flox does to help with the situation that they're dealing with in this episode? That knowing that's going to last a couple of generations, do you think apart from having more of a human look, that it could have also had the California raisins Klingork look that we see in Discovery? That wasn't what I thought you were going to say, and I think there's zero connection. I just okay. think Discovery wanted to go its own way. Okay, where do you think I was going to go? I thought you were going to bring up Section Thirty-One. Because it's in this two-part episode that we have the first chronological mention of Section 31. Okay. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because Malcolm, Malcolm Reed, our tactical officer, is uh, secretly working for Section 31. Yeah. Or somehow tangentially working with them. Okay. 
Well, that never mind. That'll, that'll just be a conversation for a different time. I guess I was just thinking about, you know, in Star Trek Picard, we have um, the northern and the southern Romulans. That's why the the ridges are different. And anyway, let's just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Okay, moving on. Uh, great episode. It was it was a fun explanation to how Enterprise connects you know, 1980s Klingons to 1960s Klingons. I like that. Yeah, and I, I think it works. I'm perfectly satisfied with the explanation they give in this episode, this these two-part episodes. Okay. All right, so I think we're nearing, we're almost nearing the end of season four yeah, with the story arcs. Yeah, there's 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 one more little story arc, and that's the In a Mirror Darkly, parts one and two. <sighs> And, and, like, listen, I said before, I said on an Engage episode that I dislike the Mirror Universe, right? That's not where I want to focus my time and attention. But I actually really enjoy these two episodes here. Mm-hmm. Because they're just fun, and you can tell that the actors are having a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And so I don't mind this episode at all, these two episodes. Yeah. It's it's not bad. I mean, it's not a storyline that I'm like super excited to watch or anything. But I was a uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of Linda Park in this episode. Yeah, yeah, she's good. I mean, she doesn't she doesn't get anywhere near the amount of time that that characters in the other shows do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that she gets a moment to shine here. Yeah, and. I don't know if I should say this, but I okay, I'll say it. So we have we have the characters like throughout Star Trek, right? Like we have like Deanna Troy, uh, the sex appeal. We have uh, I'd say Jadzia Dax to a certain extent. We have um, Seven of Nine for sure in Voyager, and I really think that Jillian Blaylock's uh, to Paul was supposed to be the eye candy, the sex appeal for the show. And up to that point, or, hold on, let me say this: that in a mirror darkly, I thought that Linda Parks Hoshisato was way more attractive than Jolene Blaylock in the Mirror Universe episode. I'll just leave that there. Okay, uh, this this idea of sex appeal was something that I wanted to mention, and I was gonna leave it to the end, and maybe we could come back to that. We can, yeah, if you want to. Or do you if do you want to talk about it now, or do you want to come back to it? It uh, doesn't matter. I'm fine let's with it. Let's come back to it. Let's, okay. let's come back to it. Sure. So, um, and now we're we're right up into the last three episodes. We have the two-part. There, there are three episodes left, but there should only be two. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, the last episode is a big, fat slap in the face to everything that this show was for the previous four seasons. And and uh, Rick Berman, I believe, was the... Is, I Correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to say this, said that the final episode was like a Valentine's to the fans, but that's total BS. Yeah, and I need to say some stuff about not only the finale, but just the the ending of the show period once we get to it so let's talk about the two-part 
let's and then let's knock out the series finale and then I'll add my notes and then we can talk about sex appeal. How about that? Okay. Sounds like a plan. Okay, let's do it. Let's make it so. Okay. So these two episodes, Demons and Terra Prime, work perfectly, I think, as a series finale. I think like they the idea we're coming together, we're trying to form a Federation charter, and then we have this xenophobic group that is totally opposed to it we're fighting them off we defeat them but then we realize hey you know we're not ready yet to form this um this charter this peaceful organization and uh but let's keep working on it and i think these two episodes would have been perfect as a series finale yeah i remember it having um a very um uh, serious and darker tone to it, and I loved the heck out of out of what they were doing uh, with having RoboCop come back in and be the main dude behind the stuff. I loved it. Yeah, Peter Weller, right. and Peter Weller would also show up later in Star Trek and play another villain in Star Trek Into Darkness. Yes, he will. Yeah, I wonder if it's the same guy. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. It's totally not. It's totally not the same guy. But yeah, this was really good. And then like seeing, seeing the mess that um, not the mess, but just the trouble that like Flocks and T'Pol uh, were kind of sort of in as a result of this story, right? Because of, like you were saying, like the xenophobic nature of of what was going on in this particular storyline with Star Trek Enterprise. So great, great story arcs all throughout season, throughout the whole series. To be honest with you, and and I think this this two-part episode came out in May of 95 but I almost think it's more relevant today than it was 15 years ago yeah with the right? the, the, the landscape and what we're dealing with right now well, absolutely the, the, the political landscape in this country and I don't I don't want to bring politics into this right but I think it, it I don't think we can really talk I mean we probably could but I, th- I don't want to talk about this episode without mentioning that like we have this this landscape today where we have whether you agree with it or not it's some people are trying to scapegoat foreigners right people who are not us in our country and um there is this push from some people to say they don't belong here and we want them to leave and remove them and if they don't leave maybe we're going to force them out Mm -hmm. so i think that this episode is very relevant in today's today's world yes again good science fiction star star trek included does a good job of getting you to think about things that are going on that you might not have considered prior so kudos to sci-fi and star trek for what it does that's really what what sci-fi is about in my opinion right me too that's that's the purpose of science fiction so with that, we are now at the series finale of Star Trek Enterprise. And hey, and you named this podcast after that episode. <laughs> not not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> so this is your favorite episode, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally my favorite. <laughs> so the name of, of the series finale is These Are the Voyages. And what do you know? You're listening to These Are the Voyages. How about that? 
It's crazy how it just comes full circle, Eric. Yeah, full circle. Man. 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 Oh, so you want to go first? Okay, so with with this uh, particular part of of the series, like the very very end, we're we're looking at the the last mission. We have a little bit of a time jump going on with with these are the voyages, the final episode, the series finale of Star Trek Enterprise, and with the change with the time jump, there's also some changes, such as like updates on the bridge. For the most part, we have some uniform changes as well. And we're going through this, and at one point we're f- we find out that we're in a holodeck program with Commander Riker and Counselor Troy, and it's set during the TNG episode, The Pegasus, which is just weird that we've effectively turned a, uh, an Enterprise episode into a TNG episode. And I thought it was, I, I like seeing Riker. I, I'm always okay with seeing Riker and Troy, but I didn't. I didn't like how it was used. It is incredibly disrespectful, in my opinion, for these actors to, you know, have this show about them, and then the very last episode, you say, well, it's not even about them, right? It's not about you. You're not important, right? Because. Honestly, I don't even remember what the actual story that is focused around these Enterprise characters is. I can't remember that at all. The only thing I can even think of when I think about this episode is that it's about Riker and his dilemma of the events surrounding the episode The Pegasus. And they tried to, I think they tried to redeem it and justify it by saying, you know, take take a page out of Captain Archer's playbook, basically. So that was like their their workaround with trying to redeem it. But, you know, even reading stories about the cast and the crew when this happened, they felt very disrespected, and rightfully so. Like, you, you call in you know, TNG to save the show, basically. Yeah, it's... Which, which didn't need saving, because it was going off the air. Like, why write it that way? Yeah, it it's... I, if I was one of the, the main characters on the show, I would be incredibly upset. And I think justifiably so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, this, with, with this show, like, we, we see a couple things. Like, there's, we, we see it and we think, at least I thought, there was going to be a happy ending for some of the, the characters. And there wasn't. There's, and I'm not going to name it. I don't want you to name it either. But there's an unexpected death that happens in this too, which I thought was very flippant. I didn't think it was necessary at all. At all. I would what totally agree. I think it was very much uncalled for. And you would... I, I would expect there to be a happy ending for the main cast. And at least somewhat and they're just it just seemed like it was not like it was just like let's just put the kibosh and just you know tell people to suck it up kind of like wish with how like the story was was done and everything and i don't want to get into the weeds with like this this completely but 
just a lot of the stuff that happened I thought was very unnecessary for the story as a whole. But at the same time, I did like the fact that we were going to kind of see the founda- the foundation of the Federation in the closing minutes of the show. Right, there's the one closing scene where Archer is going to give a speech in front of a big collection of delegates, right? Mm-hmm. And and Riker, I think it was Riker who said he memorized that speech and had to recite it in schools at some moment in time. Yeah. It it would have been nice to have heard that, but I mean, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, this, like, um, man, this is, like, a low point in Star Trek for me. I just, I really do not like this episode. I don't like what they did with it, and I just, I don't watch this episode. Like, if I'm re-watching Star Trek, I just completely ignore this episode and try and pretend it doesn't exist. Okay. So, let me... Let me just go ahead and, and kind of tra- start transitioning, starting to segue into uh, the end of the show and the future of Star Trek following this, uh, as briefly as I can. So this was the last TV show Star Trek, TV iteration of Star Trek for uh what was it like 16 12 12 years right because we went from 2005 to 2017 uh yes yes sorry thank you so 11 and a half to 12 ish years before we see another tv version of star trek in the meantime we have star trek nemesis that's going to be coming out here in about a uh, a year or so that airs in 2002 and then we're going to get you know this revised alternate timeline six and a half, seven years following that with the J.J. Abrams films. But this was the last TV show for a very long time. And like like I was talking about and, and pointing out, Star Trek had been on the air consistently for 18 years, from 1987 to 2005. And at the time of this, uh, there was a guy named Les Moonves, who was head of uh, CBS and he didn't like Star Trek he didn't get it and he just wanted to axe it and he just that's that was the, the main reason behind the cancellation it wasn't as much ratings as people would like to think even though the ratings were more poor but there was still there were still plans from what I understand for a season 5 of Star Trek Enterprise there were and there were plans for a season five, absolutely. So the fact that the the head of CBS did not like Star Trek, had an axe to grind with it, is part of the reason why we didn't have any Star Trek up until 2017 with Star Trek Discovery coming on CBS All Access. Now it's behind yeah. a paywall yeah. instead of on on antenna television, basically. Right, and at that point, Les Moonves was no longer the head of CBS. He had been he had been forced out. Yes. So he went bye-bye, and uh, anyways, we were just in limbo. And I'll, let me just say this, and I think you'll agree with this, Eric, that when it comes to to Star Trek, I believe 100% that it is best experienced on the small screen. You, you need to, I believe it's important to have the week-to-week uh, thinking 
uh, and considering of stuff rather than having the pew, pew, pew and the zipping around blowing stuff up like we have with more recent Star Trek. And uh, I think part of what happened also with Star Trek Nemesis, and I know this is an Enterprise-focused show, but the last next-gen movie, there was a foc- there, there was more focus on action, and the director himself, like we've talked about before, wanted just to com- like throw the rule book out, basically. So there, were, there wasn't as much gatekeeping that was happening at this point in the timeline. Um, and, and yes, Nemesis happened in 2002. This is 2005. I know I'm jumping around. Sorry, guys. But, but there, like, there's like gatekeeping issues that are happening at this point with where Star Trek is from a production standpoint. So, well, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Rick Berman, who had been in charge of Star Trek for a long time, yeah. Basically, almost from the beginning, he yeah. wa- he wanted to step away from it too, didn't he? He did. I think him and Brandon Braga were both wanting to because they they were more or less scraping the the bottom of the barrel, like with storylines. Because again, eighteen years of weekly adventures of Star Trek spanning four TV shows. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah, eighteen years, but it was twenty five seasons of television. Yes. Yeah. Lots and lots of television, like lots of overlap and stuff like we've talked about. So, yeah, they were wanting to step away, too, because they're like, we feel like we've told all the stories we know how to tell at this point. And, and season five would have been probably the last or the second or certainly the second to last season for Star Trek Enterprise had it gone for as long as they wanted it to. Uh, I think season five would have been more focused on the actual founding of the Federation. Like it would have been a more mm-hmm. dedicated look at that, and, which and, I think would have been great to see. Well, and we know this is one thing that's been confirmed is that we didn't even talk about him, but Jeffrey Combs, who fantastic Star Trek character actor who on Enterprise played Shran, the Andorian um, commander, one of the main Andorian recurring character. He was mm-hmm. going to be a series regular in season five. That's been confirmed, which, which would have been awesome. I would have loved the heck out of that. I would have loved that. Yeah. Love me some Jeffrey Combs. And he's and for those that might not know who Jeffrey Combs is, you might know him from other Star Trek shows, such as Deep Space Nine, where you see him as uh, Wayun, who's the Vorta, which we're trying, we're still trying to get Erickson Vorta ears. Yeah, we still right? are. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, Brunt, I believe, yeah, was the name. Brunt. Liquidator Brunt, the Ferengi, who is like the perpetual thorn in Quark's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he he shows up in a lot of like smaller one-off roles too. He does, yes. Right, he's just. A, but those 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 might be like the main three though. Right. That you that you know him from when it comes to Star Trek. Yeah, and I would have loved to see him as a series regular, and just to see what that would have looked like, right? Knowing that. You know he's an Andorian. This is a a, a Federation ship. We're not, he's not even a Federation ship at this point. But we would have been getting the beginnings of the Federation here and starting to blend the 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 species and the crews together. Yeah. All right. So I think that's that's pretty much all I have to say about like the gatekeeping and the CBS side of things. I mean they did what they thought they had to do, and I mean it is what it is. Uh, and fortunately, we are getting some Star Trek again, even if it is behind a paywall and it's a web series. It's good to have it back on the on the the small screen, but it's not in the same 
pure form as it was up until 2005. And that doesn't mean that I don't like what we have. It's different. Right. The The television landscape has changed since 2005, right? I know the the early 2000 you know the 2000 the late 2000s and the early 2010s are often considered people call it like the golden age of television there was so much great television right in this time basically from like 2005 to 2015 so much great television in there but television changed in that point and it really moved away from the episode of the week format and became super serialized and star trek when it came back on television decided it wanted to follow that new path that television had taken. Absolutely. So, was there anything about Jeffrey Combs that you wanted to talk about more? Because I know that we had talked about him in pre-show, and I wasn't sure if there was a deeper dive that you needed to take for this particular episode. No, I just, I really like his character of Shran in this entire series. I think some of the best moments feature him, right? From the very first time we see him in the Andorian incident in season one till all the way up through season four. I think he's just a fantastic, um, fantastic character, fantastic actor. And I just would have really loved to see what the storyline would have been with him as a series regular. Yeah. Yeah. Shran is definitely one of my favorites of, of the recurring characters. Uh, him and him and Gardner, I just I love both of them. So, um, who's Gardner? All right, look, who's Gardner? Why did I say Gardner? Sorry, Forrest. Oh, Admiral Forrest. Yeah. Okay. Gardening, foresting. Okay. Well, oh, Admiral Forrest is played by Vaughn Armstrong, and Vaughn Armstrong is another person who was a. Uh, he's actually the most prolific character actor in Star Trek history. Vaughn Armstrong has played more individual characters than anyone in the history of Star Trek. He often, even more than James Cromwell. Well, yeah, <laughs> yes, even more. Yes, I, I know what you're saying. James Cromwell was on several episodes. He's James Cromwell even makes a cameo in the pilot episode of Enterprise as Zephyr, he does. as Zephyr Cochran. And he also, fun fact, I think I mentioned this before too. So, in Amir Darkly, one of the the multi part stories we were talking about from. Uh, season four. So when I went on a tour at Star Trek: The Experience, the the docent or the tour guide or whatever uh, pointed to the display where Zephyr Cochran's uh, outfit was that James Cromwell wore, and they said that when they were shooting in a mirror darkly, they requested this very costume, and they're like, "Why do you think that is?" I'm like, "Well, because he was." redoing his scene that he did in First Contact basically, but the Terran version of it. So that was pretty cool. I think I've told that story before, but um, since we're talking about James Cromwell, that's just pretty cool that they they used the actual displayed costume from Star Trek The Experience to reshoot the First Contact scene. Yeah, that is Mirror cool. Universe style. That is cool how they didn't just try and like make a new uniform. They wanted it to, to be the perfect thing that they had before. That's really cool. It's neat. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's go ahead and move on to this this final bit that I know you want to talk about. And that was the sex appeal. I started talking about it a little bit by pointing to different characters in Star Trek, and I also talked a little bit about uh, T'Pol and um, a little bit about Hoshi. So uh, go ahead and take it from there as we start to 
uh, move and meander towards the end of this episode. Okay. So I want to say this as best I can, um, and hopefully I will do that. Star Trek is not a show, or at least should not be a show, that needs sex appeal, right? That is totally not the point or the purpose of it. And, like, the original series, I know they had the Janice Rand character who was in just a few episodes in the beginning who was probably supposed to be, like, some kind of a sex appeal character, but they quickly wrote her out of the show. Right? They had Nurse Chapel there, but I don't think the purpose of Nurse Chapel was for sex appeal at all. I mean, I hope... I hope... I hope that, uh... You would agree with that. I would. Okay. Um, we go to the next generation, and we've got Deanna Troy, and Marina Sirtis is certainly a, an attractive woman, and I know they put her in the little short skirt in the pilot episode, and then they moved her into, like, a dress for a lot of, like, some of those outfits. And sure, there was some cleavage, but there was nothing that was, like, overt... I hope you would agree with that. Yes. Right? And then we move into Deep Space Nine, and we've got these great female characters in Deep Space Nine, right? Jadzia Dax and Kira Norris, just amazing female characters. But they were amazing female characters, and certainly Jadzia is a strong woman who, um, you know, is not afraid to, like be a sexual person but she's not overtly sexual if that makes sense I would agree and I think that's part of the thing that I like about Jadzia is that she is a very attractive woman very attractive character but it's not like in your face like look at me look at me I'm a sex kitten I'm a sex pot it's not like that at all right and then and then Kira is probably in my opinion she's probably like the strongest of all the female characters in Star Trek history, right? There's there's absolutely... And, and Nana Visitor is certainly an attractive woman as well, but there's no, there's no even attempt to sexualize that character, I don't feel. No. No, no not, not at all. No. And then we move to Voyager, and we've got Kate Mulgrew, our main character. We've got a female captain, right? Strong, strong woman... Right, and I love the fact that you know Star Trek did the the female captain. I think it was a great thing for them to do, and I we we've had this Voyager discussion before, where the producers stole the show from Kate Mulgrew, and they stole it from her for the lowest common denominator, which was sex appeal. And listen, Jerry Ryan is a beautiful woman. I don't think anybody will dispute that, but. And, and she's a good actor, too. And I'm not saying she's not. Right? And I think Seven of Nine is a very good character. But when she joins the show, it essentially becomes the Seven of Nine show. Right? And almost all of the story becomes about her. And she absolutely was brought onto the show for sex appeal. Like, I don't think anyone will ever dispute that. I don't think you can. I think all of her assets were highlighted in the the wardrobe that the character wore. Yeah. And 
to your point when it comes to to seven to nine with like the sex appeal and like highlighting everything th- this is something that another sci-fi show was feeling threatened by to be honest with you so stargate sg1 i know we talked about that earlier uh there's a part um you're gonna have to help bail me out of this one eric uh but there is one of the um Not the bad Gould, but the good Gould. Uh, the Tok'ra? Tok'ra, thank you. So the Tok'ra, there's um, a part in one of the, the mid to later seasons where there's an attractive woman, and she's kind. she kind of screws things up for him. Like, they, she comes and visits from time to time, but she's kind of, like, kind of scantily clad. Oh, yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I forget the character's hey. name, but I know who you're talking about. Anyways, that particular Tok'ra was actually cast as a direct competition to Star Trek Voyager because Star Trek Voyager was pulling SG-1 viewers. So they were trying, so SG-1 was trying to ramp up sex appeal to get those viewers back as a direct competition to Jerry Ryan's 709 character. I was totally unaware of that, but that makes perfect sense, right? I think... It makes perfect sense. Like, I love me some Major Carter, Sam Carter. She's a great character, but, like, she was a great character without needing the sex appeal. And she was attractive. Yeah, she was. At the same time. Yes. Yeah. Right? And so, so look, look, Jerry Ryan, she's a beautiful woman, and she's a good actress. Like, I'm not trying yes. to sit here and say she's not. And I think her character was very well written, right? And I think there were a lot of good stories there, but... Absolutely, she was hired for her sex appeal. Yeah. Right? And they highlighted all of her assets. Absolutely. And so, so Voyager ends, and Seven of Nine is a very popular character, and we bring on T'Pol, Jolene Blaylock. Again, Jolene Blaylock is an attractive woman, right? I don't think anyone is going to dispute that, right? But... They put her in these outfits. They said, hey, we got Seven of Nine in these skin-tight outfits, and it it helped our viewership. So let's put another attractive woman in these skin-tight outfits. Right? And I just think it was totally unnecessary. Yeah. Right? And and we see her in seasons one and two. She's, she's still a member of the Vulcan Science Academy, or Vulcan Command, and she's wearing, like, it's almost like a camo, camo, jumpsuit yes right but then when we go into this zindi arc in season three she resigns because the vulcans don't want her to go on this mission but archer still wants her as part of his her, his crew and this could have been a perfect moment to get her out of that of that skin tight outfit but instead this is where she switches to like the skin tight pink outfit in season three yeah. Which was, yeah, like diff- different pastel jumpsuits that she's wearing. Right. Which which like like this would have been the perfect moment to okay, we don't need this anymore. Let's get her out of this, right? But instead, they almost doubled down on it because like it went from camo to like bright colors that almost like accentuated it even more. Yeah, and not only that, but you if you look, at, I mean, we look at the pilot episode where she's all like buttoned up basically and like you you see more and more of like the neckline plunging you know and 
and the tighter the jumpsuit's becoming. Right, and and there's even that point in the pilot episode where they're in the decontamination chamber, right? Mm-hmm. And they have to get down to their underwear, and they're they're her and Trip are rubbing each other up with this like decontamination gel, and it's like, is this scene really necessary? Does our Star Trek need this? No, it doesn't need it, but it's it's kind of justified, right? Because like they don't trust transporters in Star Trek Enterprise, so they, they and they're mainly using shuttle pods, so they can't filter out these microbials, and they're they're just doing what Phlox is saying, like rub this crap on you and you'll be de- decontaminated. Right. Okay. So it's 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 semi justified, right? Right. But, but like it, it might not have been able to be, um, or should have been ramped up as much as it was. I think is what you're getting at. Right, right. It was definitely ramped up. And then, and then finally, we move into season four, where in season four, T'Pol actually gets a Starfleet commission, and she becomes a Starfleet officer, right? And we see she gets the rank pips on her collar, like the, yeah. the three rank pips, and. You know, you had her in the first two seasons in her Vulcan uniform. You could have gotten her out of these these skin-tight suits in Season 3 when she's no longer a Vulcan officer. But now in Season 4, she's a Starfleet officer. So you could have put her in one of these Starfleet jumpsuits, right? Right. But why, did, why did they not put her in a Starfleet jumpsuit, right? There's that point in Season 7 of Deep Space Nine where they give Kira, Kira a Starfleet commission. And she switches out of the the Bajoran uniform into a Starfleet uniform. So why right. did they not have T'Pol? They had ample opportunity to get her out of these skin-tight suits. And they never chose to do this. And I really just think, like, that this is something they should have done. Right? I really, I really just wish they had done this. The only time that she was in a uniform was in... In a mirror darkly, but I don't no, even. No, that no, doesn't no. even count. No, there was an episode um, in season three where, uh, like, Archer gets infected with some brain parasites, and oh and yeah, Paul becomes the captain of the ship, and she gets into one of the Starfleet uniforms. Okay. Right. Well, still, it's very minimal. Like two episodes, right? Right. right. And two episodes that she's wearing the the gold on the shoulders. Yeah. And listen, like, I appreciate a good-looking woman. I'm not trying to say I don't. I just feel like this is not the place. Star Trek is not the place where we need to try and sex things up, right? There can be a time and a place for that, and I don't think that Star Trek is here, and this is one of my biggest gripes with this show. Sure. And I just wanted to say my piece with that. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Now, we're we're at the end of talking about this, and there is so much more that we could have talked about, and maybe we'll we'll do like a follow up eventually, like with all these main shows. But this is just meant to be a sampling, like a brief smattering of stuff. And uh, sure, there's you and I would agree that there's a lot of stuff that we left out. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that we left out. A lot of stuff that we left out. So. To know what we left out, you need to go watch the show. Period. Period. Go watch it. It's go fun. watch it. It's You'll fun. enjoy it. That is one of the things that I really enjoy about this show, is that it has so much rewatchability factor. And, yeah. and 
if you want to turn on just one episode and watch, you've got, oh, it's, you know, an hour before you want to go to bed. Hey, turn on an episode of this. Yeah. And you can, like, you can watch a lot of the episodes. It doesn't have to be perfectly in order. Yeah. So, with that, we're going to have to um, start to say see you later today. Uh, we have a delegation from Andoria that's going to be coming to the station here pretty soon, so we got to make sure we're all dressed up and gussied up for the ambassadors. Do we have to put on our dress uniforms? We do, actually. So, I hope you get them, get it back from the replimat uh, soon enough. Yeah, I had to take it to the tailor. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I trust that tailor. It's Garrick's cousin, isn't it? It's Garrick's cousin, yeah. And you never know, those Cardassians. Ah, well. All right, well, you know, there's there's much more to this and all the other episodes. So as we move forward with this podcast, uh, we're probably not going to be able to have the same kind of conversation we do with, uh, like we would have with Discovery like we have with these other ones, but we'll certainly entertain doing some kind of discovery episode some way. But, um, as like I was saying at one point when I interrupted myself that we're going to start having more history and lore and battles and stuff like that for future episodes of this podcast. So, and I'm definitely going to have Eric back and Lisa and some other people, uh, sometime in, uh, March or April of 2020. Uh, I'm going to have someone on specifically to talk about Star Trek music and um, I'm looking forward to talking about that with, with one of my friends as well. So um, any final uh, thoughts or whatever, Eric, before we, we do our, our hailing frequencies stuff? No, I think we covered everything that I wanted to talk about here. And I hopefully that we have done a good job of just setting up this show for you and giving you some basic information here. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again, Eric, for doing all the recording and the hanging out with me as you have. And, uh, yeah. Also, before we, we close this and, and, you know, just get going, I want to make sure I take the time to honor and thank Dan Jones for, uh, the beautiful music that he, he creates on a regular basis. Uh, you can see him on, on Instagram and, and you can connect with him on Facebook. He's in our Facebook group. And he's the one that was actually playing Archer's theme um, in the earlier part of the show. So I didn't want this episode to end without thanking him for such a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. And uh, he, he does other beautiful acoustic and other instrumental uh, renditions of, of different songs and things like that. So I want to encourage you to connect with him and check him out, especially if you really liked what you heard earlier in that acoustic portion once we were starting to talk about uh, Star Trek Enterprise. So, Dan, thank you so very much okay so it's been a long road uh, in today's episode and uh, anyways it's that time where uh, we we open up hailing frequencies so uh, with that if you'd like to get in contact with us you can do that a couple different ways you can uh, uh, send us a transmission you can do that by uh, entering in coordinates trtvpod at gmail.com you can also do a voice-only transmission by entering in coordinates 817-752-4757. Again, that's 817-752-4757. Remember that there's a three-minute time limit and your comments may be used on a future episode. Finally, if you'd also like to uh, send us 
any other kind of long-range communication, you can do so by sending it to the Lone Star Station, which is P.O. Box 2455, Azle, Texas. That's A-Z-L-E, 76098. Guys, I want to thank you for all this. Uh, again, like I said, it's been a long road getting from there to here. I'm really looking forward to continuing this with you as we continue to talk about Star Trek and start to talk more about history and other issues and other topics in Star Trek. So, as always, may you boldly go and make it safe.